Now today, friends, we come to the 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and we're moving into the shadow now of the cross. We're moving into that section that has to do with the last things of his earthly life. And we find here that all these incidents, they took place the day before the crucifixion, and that's the ones recorded here. That was a busy day. Luke records for us only a segment of that day. He omits, for instance, the washing of the feet of the disciples. That day before his murder was a day of crisis, and the pyramiding of all things toward that central fact, his cross, And these transactions point us on to Golgotha, so that if we can't sing it, we can say it. In the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time. All things are prepared for that event. And as Dr. Forsyth has put it, the cross is the center of gravity in a moral world. We find here heaven, hell, and earth. We're getting ready for the cross, and you have the mechanics of it here. In these first two verses, the religious rulers are plotting against him. That's earth. Then you find hell is plotting against him. Verses 3 through 6, Judas conspired diabolically to betray him. And then verses 7 through 13, it's heaven. Jesus and his disciples, they plan the last Passover together. Now let's look at these here at the beginning. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And this now is the Passover in which he'll die. He's come up to Jerusalem. Luke has been very careful to tell us way back yonder in Caesarea Philippi, six months before he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem to die. And everything he's done since then has been a movement toward Jerusalem. He's here now. There has been the so-called triumphal entry, and there has been the Mount of Transfiguration, and now we've come to the day before. And what's happening? Well, verse 2, "...and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people." They would have taken him immediately and have slain him, but they were afraid of the people. You see, it's Passover. They are there from everywhere. And the people were for him. They were the silent majority, by the way. And then we find that hell is preparing for the cross, too. Listen to this. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. Now, here is something we need to say. Is it possible for a Christian to be demon-possessed? And the answer, of course, is no. But it's possible for a church member who's not a Christian to be. And I think the meanest people in the world that I've met are not in the mafia, and they're not in jails, they're in the church. And I've met a few then in the church that I'm confident are demon-possessed. It's to be pretty hard to explain their conduct on any other basis. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot. And my friend, if you're going to stand on the sidelines and listen to the preaching of the gospel and do nothing about it but mix and mingle with God's people, the day will come when Satan will move in the old vacant house or one of his demons and take up possession. And that's what happened here. Judas Iscariot had rejected Jesus. 
Now we are told here he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. They were glad. They covenanted to give him money. They were wondering how they would take him. Now one of the number betrays him. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. In other words, the plot was, wait till the crowd leaves Jerusalem. Wait till we can take him alone. Wait until people will not know what we're doing. And they would take him secretly. And Judas was just to abide his time and let them know. But that time actually never came. And that's the reason in the upper room that John records. You remember when the Lord Jesus gave Judas that sup? He says to him, what you do, do quickly. The time has come. You're going to have to move hurriedly. And he did. And we'll see that in just a moment now. Now we come to the fact that Jesus and his disciples planned the last Passover. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover, that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? He said unto them, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. And ye shall say unto the goodman of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. Now, I see no reason, as I've suggested before, to read a miracle in here that this is just something done miraculously. Our Lord had been to Jerusalem many times. He met the one who had this upper room. He knew him. And I'm sure this friend offered it to him. When you're in Jerusalem, bring your disciples here. And now our Lord's letting him know. And I probably he'd made arrangements the year before or the feasts before. I see no reason to read a miracle in you when it's not necessary. Now, verse 14. Now we come to that. When the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And we have here now the fact that he's come to the Last Supper. And the Passover ended at verse 18. Therefore, let me read this. When the hour was come, he sat down, the twelve apostles with him. Judas is there, you see. He said unto them with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I'll not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom. He took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I'll not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. At the Passover, the cup circulated actually four times. And I think he participated up to the last cup. And that was the cup of joy. He did not drink it. And the question arises, did he ever drink that cup? Oh, yes. I think he did. On the cross, they gave him vinegar to drink. And you remember what he said? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He drank the cup of joy on the cross. That was the cup. He had asked these disciples, James and John, are you able to drink of the cup that I drink of? They thought they could. 
Well, you notice now what he does. Therefore, on the embers here, the dying embers of the fading feast of Passover, he fanned into flame the new feast, the Lord's Supper. And out of the ashes of a dead economy, there blossoms red life that shall endless be. Notice it. He took bread, and he gave thanks, and brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup, that's after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. They took the two frailest things in the world, friends. He took bread and wine. You leave them overnight and both will spoil. The bread will spoil and also the wine will. I think that it was unfermented wine, but let's not argue that one. It would ferment. And therefore, both would spoil. When he reared a monument, it was not a monument of brass or marble, but these two frail elements that perish. And he says, "...the bread speaks of my body." and the wine speaks of my blood. The bread speaks of his body broken, not a bone broken, but a broken body, because he's made sin for us. I don't think he even looked human when he came down from that cross. There's no beauty that we should desire him. That's the picture that we have here. And now the Passover feast looked forward to his coming and his death. Now he's in the shadow of the cross, and this is the last one. God's Passover sin, the Passover feast, has now come and been fulfilled. And we gather about the Lord's table, and we search our hearts before we go. We ought to. But there we do everything in remembrance of him. We look back. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death till he comes. Now will you notice, verse 21, "...but behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table." He's right here in our midst. There are those that believe that this man Judas actually left before the institution of the Lord's Supper. I think that's accurate. Somebody says, well, why didn't Dr. Luke give us that in the chronological order? Because what he's doing is giving us the Passover and how our Lord went right out of that. Now, John makes it clear that it was during the Passover that's when our Lord took the sop, gave it to Judas, says, What you do, do quickly, and he left. I think that you need to understand that to understand what took place here properly. And notice now, And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he's betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them that it was that should do this thing. You know, every one of those men believed he could do it. And if you are honest, you know you could betray him, don't you? You know, friends, if he didn't keep his hand on me in the next five minutes, I could deny him. Thank God he won't take his hand off, though. I rejoice in that. What a wonderful thing that we have here. Now, will you notice... Verse 24, "...and there was also a strife among them which of them should be accounted the greatest." 
And these men who recognized how low they could stoop also had ambition to want to go to the highest. They wanted to become the greatest. Can you imagine that? Right in the shadow of the cross. And here these men are grasping for position. Well, don't we see that in the church today? The saints probably haven't improved over the apostles. Verse 25, "...and he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority over them are called benefactors." But ye shall not be so, but he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. In other words, the Lord said, I've taken the lower place. And friends, when he took my place on the cross, it was just like, today getting up from the table and telling your servant, now you sit down and eat and I'm going to serve you. When he came to this earth, all mankind should have been his servant. We should have been there to serve him. But instead of that, he served us. He set a table of salvation and he's invited us to this great feast of salvation. What a picture that we have here. But notice what he says to his disciples, how gracious he is to them. He says in verse 28, "...ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations, or in my testings here upon the earth. And I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father hath appointed unto me." I think the apostles will have a special place in the kingdom. You see, they bridge the gap between the Old Testament and the New. They come out of the Old Testament economy and move into the New Testament economy. And you and I are not in that position today. None of us can fit into that particular place because chronologically they bridge the gap. Now, they're going to be given a special place in the kingdom. And I think rightly so. I hope you don't object to it. And very frankly, I don't know what you could do if you did object to it. I'm for them having a prominent place myself. I don't mean to say deserve it, but I do think that if it's going to be given out, these are the men that should receive it. Now he says that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's going to be the place given to the twelve apostles. That will be their position. You know, friends, that The child of God has some great things in store for the future. I think that the redeemed are going to occupy actually exalted positions. I wonder if you're working for a place. Somebody says, well, I didn't think you worked for salvation. You don't work for salvation. Let me put it like this. You don't work for heaven, but you work for your place in heaven. You're going to heaven by the grace of God, but you are going to be judged according to your works to see what position that you have. Are you interested in your good works then? You ought to be. That which is done by the Spirit of God. Now, I believe the only thing that God will judge is the exercise of the gift that he gives us. He gives us a gift when we're put in the body of believers, and there are literally thousands of gifts. Why? Do you know what was a gift in the early church? There was a woman by the name of Dorcas, and she just sold. 
And somebody says, you mean to tell me sewing was a gift? It sure was. And she made clothes. There were widows there wearing her garments. They weren't modeling. They were widows that she'd made them clothes. They wouldn't have had clothes. And when Simon Peter saw that, he said, this woman's needed in the early church. And he raised her from the dead. May I say to you, there are all kinds of gifts. Now, you'll be rewarded by the exercise of the gift that God has given to you, whether you've been faithful in the exercise of the gift. Your Christian life ought to be a pretty important thing before God, my beloved. Now, will you notice what he says in verse 31? And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now, converted here doesn't mean conversion as you and I think of it. That is, when he's had a change of heart and mind and his faith has increased, then at that time, why, we'll find that there'll be a tremendous change wrought in this man, Simon Peter. And you notice our Lord says, I have prayed, though that you're going to deny me, I pray that your faith fail not. And today he's our intercessor. He knows whether you're moving to the place of failure and of stumbling. And if you are his, my friend, he's already prayed for you that your faith fail not. If you belong to him, your faith will not fail. Though you fail, your faith will not fail. And the reason it will not is because he's prayed for you. What a picture you have. You see, he's our intercessor. He prays for us today. And a very interesting thing I should call attention to is in the so-called, well, not the so-called, but the real Lord's Prayer. And that's John 17. He says, I pray not for the world. He doesn't pray for the world. He's asked you and me to. Well, why doesn't he? Well, he died for the world. Friends, you can't ask him to do any more than that. He died for the world, but he prays for his own today and that they'll be kept in the world. He's prayed for you. Maybe you didn't pray for yourself, but he's already prayed for you. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture, by the way, and one that we ought not to pass over lightly. We're in the shadow of the cross and these things are very important, and that's the reason we're spending time with him. He says, I prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. You see, the man that's been tested is the man that really is able to help the others. And even if he's failed and he's come back to the Lord, that's the reason that I always send a converted drunkard to talk to a drunkard. I don't talk to a drunkard. I found out a couldn't. That one in Cleburne, Texas, I told you about, I went to see him, and he just patted me on the knee, and he said to me, Vernon, you are a good boy. Well, he didn't know me. He wouldn't have said that. He just thought I didn't know his case, and you want to know something? I didn't. So I went down and looked up an old drunken bum. He was an old drunken bum, a president of a bank's son that had been in Fort Worth, Texas. I looked him up, found him down on the square, and I said to him, George, you go up and talk to Bill, because I said, he thinks I'm a good boy. He says, what do you mean? Well, I said, he's open now for the gospel, but he thinks I don't understand him. Now, you're a converted drunkard. And this fellow had a, what you'd call a whiskey tenor. He'd had so much liquor that it had wrecked his voice. And he says, I'll go up there and see him. And when I go up there and see him, 
I'm going to tell him what he should do. And believe me, friends, he went up there and he sat down with him and he said to him, he says, Bill, said, you know, you and I used to drink together. And Bill looked up at him and said, I know. Well, he says, Jesus saved me and he can save you. And you know what happened, friends? He saved Bill too. I couldn't talk to him. No use me spending my time there. So our Lord says to Simon Peter, he says, when you're converted, you strengthen the brethren. The man that's been through it's the one that can help. And he said unto him, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he sincerely meant it, but he didn't know himself. And many of us don't really do not know how weak we are. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. And you know that Simon Peter just didn't believe that could be true. But that night, that's exactly what happened. He denied the Lord three times. Now, in verse 35, he does a most unusual thing, and yet he did this on several occasions. He said unto them, I'm reading now, verse 35, he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and script and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said, Nothing. And may I say that was marvelous, the way that they were provided for during that particular period when he sent them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now they're going to be sent out on a new mission, and they'll have actually a new message, and they will also have a new audience, because now they'll not be confined to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but to the world. And the world, friends, is a pretty bad place. It's not a pretty place except the physical beauty. Man, only man is vile. And now will you notice, verse 36, Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his script. You better pack your suitcase and get your traveler's checks if you're going out for the Lord today. Make preparation. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment, and buy one. You better protect yourself. There is this debate that we've had now for years on the gun law, whether a person, a law-abiding citizen, should have a gun in his home. Now, I want to tell you what I think. I think you should have a gun in your home. We're living in difficult days. Judges have let mad dogs loose from our prisons today. And my friend, if a mad dog comes into my yard and my little grandson is out in that yard playing, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get my gun and I'm going to shoot that mad dog dead, whether it's a four-legged mad dog or a two-legged mad dog. And I don't care what these soft-headed and soft-hearted judges and folk today think. I intend to protect my own. My Lord said that's always a good idea. If you don't have a sword, you better get one. And we're living in days like that. We need to recognize that. If it was the millennium, we could take the locks off our door because we're told to resist not evil during that period. But you better resist it today, my friend, or you will end up in the hospital and may have some of your loved ones slain. 
Now, somebody says, are you talking like a Christian preacher? I sure am, and I wish more of them would talk like that today. Now, will you notice? But I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. In other words, they'll put him to death, and that will end his payment for the sins of the world. And when it does, nothing but loving hands will touch him from the moment he dies. After that, when that spear went into his side, may I say to you, nothing but loving hands touched him. Now will you notice verse 38? And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, it's enough. You don't need to overdo this thing. You don't need to make your home today an armed garrison. But you do need to protect yourself. I think that today it's pretty silly to take the guns away from law-abiding citizens, and anyone knows that the lawless ones are going to get a gun. Believe me, you'd certainly put the law-abiding folk in a pretty awkward situation. And I'm not sure, but that's what some folk would like to do. Now let me move on into another area altogether. It's not maybe controversial in the way, and yet today it's one of the most misunderstood portions of the Word of God, and that's the experience of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I need to remind myself as we come to the Garden of Gethsemane that the place on which we're standing is holy ground here in this gospel. I need to remove my spiritual shoes as I stand on this sacred spot and remove my spiritual hat as I gaze in rapture upon him. Now, when I hear today people singing glibly, I'll go with him through the garden, I just want to say to you, I can't sing anything or any way, but I wouldn't sing that. I couldn't sing that. I can't go with him through the garden. The best I can do is just stand on the outside and listen to the drops of blood as they fall from him and hear his cry and somehow or another try to enter into the meaning. And I'm confident I can't enter into the meaning. I'm sorry that I can't take you all the way into the garden today. Maybe someone else can, but I cannot. I wonder today, these folks who are singing, I'll go with them through the garden. I wonder if they know what they're saying. I feel confident that they do not know the meaning of the Garden of Gethsemane, or many of these sincere people wouldn't sing that. It's a form of blasphemy for a person to say or sing, I'll go with him through the garden and then make excuses when difficulties arise and they drop out of church and stay away from service at the drop of the hat or a drop of rain. It doesn't take much. I can never sing that song. We shall go to the garden, but shall not enter. The Lord left his disciples outside. I'll stay out there with them and peer over the wall into the darkness and listen to the travail of his soul. Then if our hearts are sensible, then we shall thank God for the one who pressed the cup of our sorrow 
and our suffering to his lips and drank to the very dregs, we'll not be able to penetrate the darkness of that garden. Now, understand the full significance of all that took place. You remember yonder in the upper room, he passed the cup and said, "'Take that cup.'" When I partake of the Lord's Supper, I always taste that cup. And everywhere I've ever tasted, it's been a sweet cup. He bore the bitter cup that I might have a sweet cup. Now, there's a mystery and a depth in that garden. There's not ambiguity or obscurity, but there's a mystery. And we'll do well just to worship as we behold him yonder and catch the note of his voice. You see, now we see through a glass darkly. It was Gregory Nazianzen who years ago wrote, I love God because I know him. I adore him because I cannot comprehend him. And so I worship at the Garden of Gethsemane, and I don't try to have all the answers. Let me read now these first two verses. And he came out and went as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. Now, there are two expressions here that are quite interesting. The first one is, as he was wont, and then at the place. Now, apparently, he didn't stay in the city at night. We've already seen that in the so-called triumphal entry. And the city had rejected him, and he rejected the city. He spent every night that last week in the Garden of Gethsemane or went on into Bethany. I do not know which. Now, we find here that after the Lord's Supper, why, he went out to the garden. And that last night, an unfamiliar transaction took place in the garden. I'm not sure I know all of it, but he wrestled with an unseen foe. That's obvious. He overcame the enemy there. He gained the victory. And the victory of Calvary was won in Gethsemane. You see, at the beginning of the ministry of our Lord, Satan came and tempted him and offered him at that time the kingdoms of the world, he'd have to miss the cross, of course. And then we're told, Dr. Luke told us, that Satan left him for a season. Now, when did he come back? I presume many times. And at the end of his ministry, it was the temptation of Satan at the beginning of his ministry that he avoid the cross, and now it's the temptation of Satan again. And then you'll recall that during his ministry, Peter said to him when he mentioned the cross, "'Far be it from thee, Lord.'" And our Lord said, "'Get thee behind me, Satan.'" Satan's theology, friend, has no place for the cross of Christ. And it was Satan who came again. Now, will you notice what he said here? "'Pray that ye enter not into temptation.'" Now, I just pick up a few of the fragments here. What was the temptation? Who was going to tempt him? Well, Satan was going to be there, I believe. Now, let me read verse 41. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast. Now, how far can you throw a stone? Well, that's about how far he went ahead of them. 
And he kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Now, what was this cup? That's caused quite a bit of discussion, I'll tell you. I do not wish to be dogmatic here, but there are those that say he was afraid he would die before he got to the cross. I do not believe that. I do not see the sense of it. There's no merit in a Roman cross, friends. Just a cross has no merit in it at all. And I think it actually was just an upright, but be that as it may, there's no merit in the wood. Merit is in the one who died. And if he died on the gallons or in the electric chair, it would have just as much value. If Christ had died in the Garden of Gethsemane, it would have been Christ who died for us. The merit is in the person of the one who died for me. And the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It was on the cross that he shed his blood and died. Now, I tell you what I think. The cup was the cross. I do not mean the suffering of death. I mean this. He was made sin for us, and he's the Holy One of God. And when my sin was put upon him, it was repulsive. I don't know why we think we're so attractive to God today. My sin put on Christ was repulsive. It was awful. It was terrible. And he rebelled for a moment against it. And it was in the garden under the shadow of the cross that the tempter came to offer him once more the crown without the cross. And he came to do the Father's will. And therefore, will you listen to him here? Verse 42, "...if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done." He came to do the Father's will, and he commits himself to the Father's will. But my friend, my sin was repulsive on him, and yours didn't help either. Now, will you notice we have in verse 43, "...and there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him." Angelic ministry was at the temptation in the desert, and now it's in the garden. Luke alone records this, by the way. And now verse 44, "...and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground." Now, only Dr. Luke tells us that he sweat great drops of blood. And... He's a doctor. He's showing the tremendous physical reaction, the agony, the conflict. His sweat was as great drops of blood. Now, I cannot explain that. I don't propose to. And I'm not impressed by the biological explanations today. Now, I realize there's some wonderful Christian doctors that have come up with a biological explanation. I'm not impressed. He shed his blood for me, and I bow in reverence and worship. And I can sing this. If I could sing, I'd sing this for you. None of the ransom ever knew how deep were the waters crossed or how dark the night the Lord passed through ere he found his sheep that was lost. One of the tragic things of the present moment is seen about us, I think, every day, and has been now for years. 
You know, literally, there have been millions of American boys, beginning with World War I, World War II, and the Korean War, Vietnam, that have gone out and died on a battlefield, bleeding and dying for us here at home. Now, you'd think that the American public would be moved and appreciative of that, are we? I don't care what you think about Vietnam, and I don't care what you think about World War I. Now, if you had asked me, I think we should have stayed home in 1914. And I think we should stay home. Now, I recognize that's not popular at all today. There are those who believe we should have gone in 1914, but stay home today. I'm not sure. I think we'd stayed home in 1914. We could stay home today. But I don't know how it would have worked out. But the thing that impresses me is that America is pleasure-mad, and every night's a bacchanalian orgy. And I am not impressed by the crowd today that is protesting and have for years now, and they're just living it up, taking their drugs, having a high old time. May I say to you that the worst tragedy than that is the fact that Christ's heart was broken because of our lost condition. He bled and died for our eternal liberty. He said, I came that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. And he loved the lost world. And he went to the very depths, even hell itself. And the world spurns him, the Holy One of God, the spotless Savior who has made sin for us. And I have a question for you. Have you rejected him, spurned him? Are you ungrateful today? I'll say this to you. Why, you'd pat a dog's head that came up and licked your hand, and you can stand in the hush of Gethsemane and listen. Do you hear the sob of his soul? Do you hear the falling of the drops of blood? They're like blockbuster bombs. It's like an atom bomb if you listen. Look yonder in the garden by yon olive tree, bending low as a Savior who took upon himself your humanity and mine. And he went the next day to a cross. Now, will you notice, when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow and said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation." And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude. And he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before him and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? They thought it was time to use that sword. One of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. He touched his ear and healed him. And Jesus said unto the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. The thing is that at this time they're not to use the sword because he's now on the way to the cross. When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And that's when darkness and light met was at the cross of Christ. 
After all, it was three hours of light, as we have seen in the Gospel of Matthew, and three hours of darkness. And this is the hour of darkness, for that was the first three hours. It was spiritually dark. Man did his worst. But the last three hours, it's physically dark, but it was spiritually light, for that cross became the altar on which the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world was offered. And they took him, and they led him, and brought him into the high priest's house, and Peter followed afar off. That's a dangerous place to be, is to follow him afar off. They kindled a fire in the midst of the hall, and were set down together. Peter sat down among them. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire, and earnestly looked upon him, and said, This man was also with him. He denied him, saying, Woman, I know him not. What a liar Simon Peter was, denying our Lord, dastardly deed, by the way. And after a little while, another saw him and said, Thou art also of them. And Peter said, Man, I'm not. And about the space of one hour after another confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he's a Galilean. Simon Peter opened his big mouth and talked. And, of course, he put his foot in it, and they said, Yes, you're a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately while he spoke, the cock crew. And, friends, if he had just left it there, that would have been the end of that man. He would have ended like Judas Iscariot did. But notice what happened. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. (laughs) He came back to the Lord, friends. He repented. Then we find that they took him, rested him. And I read now in verse 63, And the man that helped Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that smote thee? And many other things blasphemously spake they against him. Now, I think that probably I should go a little more into detail here relative to the arrest of the Lord Jesus and this particular section here. This game that they played with him, they brought him to the home of Annas, and it actually was illegal to hold Christ without a charge. They held him until they formulated one in the meeting of the Sanhedrin. You see, they arrested him before they had a plan. The very interesting thing is that, you see, they did not intend to take him as quickly as they did. Judas came and said, "'You better get him while you can.'" Judas thought he might leave the city, and he had no notion of doing that, of course. And so they arrested him, but they didn't have any plan at that time of just how they would proceed. And have you ever noticed the many things that were illegal in the trial of Jesus? They arrested him for breaking the law, the Mosaic law, and they broke the Mosaic law. To begin with, they tried him at night. And that was contrary to the Mosaic law. No man was to be tried at night. The high priest rent his garment. And the high priest was told never to rend his garment. 
And they rendered a decision the same day was tried, and they were not to do that. That was the thing they were not to do. It's amazing the things they did. Now, the game they played here with him, they put him in the hands of the soldiers to hold him until the charge was made. And any prisoner that the death sentence was going to be brought against was turned over to the soldiers to play with as they wanted to. And the game they played in that day was called Hot Hand. They'd take a prisoner and every man would double up his fist and put it right in front of his face, and then they'd blindfold him. Then everybody would hit him except one. Then they took the blindfolds off, and he was to guess the one that didn't hit him. And the interesting thing is the prisoner never seemed to be able to guess that one because that hand was generally in the back of him. So they had to play it all over again. I think they beat the face of Christ into a pulp. I don't think that you would have ever recognized him. It says that he was bruised more than any man. Friends, he must have been a frightful sight even after they got through with him. It's one of the reasons he couldn't carry his cross. Now, you'll notice verse 66 and 67. This is the first charge now they brought against him. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, ye will not believe. This first charge they made against him, and he doesn't answer them at all. Then we find that he acknowledged, however, he says, If I also ask you, ye will not answer me, nor let me go. But listen to him now, verses 68 and 69, he acknowledged it. He says, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. They said, Are you the Christ? He said, Yes. Christ was going to sit on the right hand of the power of God. Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110. Now notice verse 70 here. This is the second charge. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And that was an idiom, an idiomatic way of saying, Yes, I am. And they said, What need we of any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. Now, this is the basis on which they agreed to have him crucified. But this is not the basis on which they went before a Roman court. You see, when they took him to Pilate, they changed the charges. They moved from a Jewish court to a Roman court. Now, will you notice this in chapter 23, verses 1 and 2? And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that himself is Christ the king. You see, what they're accusing him of now is treason. And it was so utterly preposterous, Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? Imagine, here's a carpenter in peasant garment before you, and they've arrested him. And Pilate, at first, thought, My, how utterly absurd and preposterous this is. Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. Yes, he could say that he was. That's an amazing thing here. 
And really, Pilate wanted to let him go. Then said Pilate to the chief priest, to the people, I find no fault in this man. You haven't any charge that would stick at all. Now notice what happened. Pilate can't get off that easy. In fact, the Lord Jesus won't let him off that easy. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. He's leading a revolution. He's rebelling against the constituted authority. You see how they're moving here. And so Pilate wanted to get off the hook here. Then Pilate heard of Galilee. He asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that, he belonged under Herod's jurisdiction. He sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. Now, Herod was in Jerusalem. I don't think it was an accident at this particular time. And now, since he's come from Galilee and Herod's jurisdiction is up in Galilee, he sends him over to Herod. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he'd heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. You see, this man Herod now had tried to see him one time, and they came and said, Herod wants to see you. And he says, you go tell that old fox the day I work, the second day, and the third day I'm perfected. Now, notice the reaction the Lord Jesus gives here to this man Herod. And then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. Our Lord had no word for this man whatsoever. He's an old fox, and he's gone past the place of no return. He's on the way to a lost eternity. And he's a Herod, and our Lord didn't do anything. He didn't answer him. He didn't make any effort to reach him. This is something that you need to look at very carefully. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And you can see these men down there doing everything they can, jumping up and down. Herod saw that he wasn't going to get anywhere. Herod, with his men of war, set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, sent him again to Pilate. He merely mocked him. And the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. Here's the beginning of an ecumenical movement, and it's away from Jesus, because most of these movements are. These two men who'd been against each other now come together. Now, on what basis? They're both opposed to Jesus. And Pilate thought he had gotten rid of him. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverted the people. And behold, I have examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. Pilate thought, Why, there's nothing here that you can accuse him of. Herod just mocked him, put a robe on him, sent him back, considered the charges not worth considering at all. And Pilate's decision, it's a weak decision. He says here, verse 16, I'll therefore chastise him and release him. And I don't know about you, but I don't like that. That's Pilate's decision. It's weak and vacillating. Actually, Pilate was on trial, not Jesus. Pilate was the one trying to get away, not Jesus. Jesus was not trying to get away from him at all. Pilate's the one that's trying to escape making a decision 
Actually, Pilate was on trial. And when this decision was handed down by a Roman court that Jesus was to be crucified, the days of Rome were numbered, and Rome was on the way out. Pilate could not escape making a decision. He had to. Every person has to make a decision relative to Jesus. So he says here, I'll just chastise him and release him. But wait a minute. That's wrong. If Jesus is guilty, then he should be punished. If he's innocent, he should be freed. But you're not to chastise him and let him go. That's wrong. That's compromise. Marlowe, the Englishman, said that compromise is the most immoral act in the English language. Compromise, the most immoral word. Nothing as immoral as that. Certainly this man was a compromiser. Now he says, for of necessity, he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, release unto us Barabbas. And I want to tell you, this man Pilate didn't want to make a decision. And this man Barabbas, he couldn't believe they'd asked for Barabbas, and he wanted to know. And notice what he did, verse 20, Pilate therefore willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate tried to escape, but he couldn't. And he said unto them the third time, Why, what evil hath he done? I found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him, let him go. Verse 22. And he's wrong in that. Pilate, those trying to escape, making a decision. But he had to make a decision. Our Lord's not trying to escape at all. And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. That's verse 23. And now verse 24, And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. Now, why didn't he hand down a decision that was according to Roman justice? And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired. But he delivered Jesus to their will. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And so this man, Pilate, finally had to make a decision, just as every man today has to make a decision relative to Jesus Christ. And then he made a decision concerning the Lord Jesus. Now we have here the record of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to note this because this is a very important section. Now, they followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. That's verse 27. And Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, to the hills cover us. And he said there's a day coming when it's better not to bring children into the world. You want some viewpoints on the population explosion? Our Lord had something to say about this. He said, the day is coming, and it's the time of the great tribulation. 
He said, it'd be better if you didn't have any children at that time. Now he tells him, don't weep for me. After all, he does not want your sympathy. He wants your faith, your trust, because he did this for you. He didn't have to die, and he's not after sympathy. He's after faith. And he didn't die to get your sympathy. If you have tears, you then save them for yourself. He says, you weep for yourselves, daughters of Jerusalem. This is what sin will do to you and what it, of course, is yet to do upon the world. Then we have this story here of the two malefactors that were crucified with him. And we've looked at this very closely before. When they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand, the other on the left. Then said, Jesus, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And they parted his raiment, cast lots. And if he hadn't asked for the Father to forgive that crowd for crucifying him, they would have committed the unpardonable sin of putting to death the Son of God. But he asked for their forgiveness. Verse 35, And the people stood beholding, the rulers also with them, derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the very interesting thing and the anomaly of it all is that if he had come down from the cross, he would not have been the Christ. He would not have fulfilled Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, and with his stripes we are healed, healed of sin, the awful plague of mankind. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews." It was put in the Greek language. That's the language of intelligence. It's the language of education and of literature and of science. And they put it in Latin. That's the language of law and order, the language of the military and the language of government. And they put it in Hebrew, and that's the language of religion. This is the king of the Jews. And he will be the political ruler, the educational ruler, and the spiritual ruler of this universe someday. That this is the king of the Jews, how accurate it was. Now, if you want the full superscription, you have to put the four Gospels together and you'll get it. That's the way to arrive at a matter like this. Now, we are told here, verse 39, that one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. Now, when they'd started out, both of these thieves, both of them ridiculed and made fun of the Lord Jesus. But during that three hours or six hours that they were on the cross, the last three hours, I think in particular, this one thief, he saw that something was taking place there, that this one dying on that cross was not dying for himself but for another. And he knew Barabbas should have been on that cross. It was his cross. 
and Jesus was dying for him, and he was innocent. And so he recognized that. And he recognized this was a transaction between God and the man on the cross. And the man on the cross was God. And then he turned to him in faith. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And that very day, that thief who wasn't fit to live down here, according to Roman government, he went to be with the Lord. May I add just this one word? This thief, by the way, that was saved. He was a thief, remember? He wasn't a good thief. He was a bad thief. Now, as we come back today to this 23rd chapter, and we're putting in right in the middle of this incident of the thief on the cross. And I think probably I should back up as I went over it so hurriedly at the conclusion of the last broadcast. I'm reading now verse 39, "...and one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? Now, the other synoptic gospels, both Matthew and Mark, make it very clear that when the beginning of the crucifixion, you see, he was on the cross for six hours, and at the very beginning, both of the thieves ridiculed him. But during that period, why, this thief, the repentant thief, he came to the understanding that the one dying on that center cross was different, and he was none other than the Son of God, and that he was dying for him, by the way, because he makes it very clear when he says here, we are in the same condemnation, we're dying, we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss." He's dying the just for the unjust. And it was obvious he was dying in particular there in Barabbas's place. And this thief began to take note that the one there was the Son of God, and his cross was an altar. And so he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now, this man had a faith to believe that the Lord Jesus was coming into a kingdom, and it would be after his death, which means that he had come a long ways theologically while hanging on that cross. Now, notice something else, verse 43, "...and Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise." Now, I can't go into a great deal of detail here, but that is a very remarkable statement that our Lord made to him, that this man would be with the Lord Jesus in paradise. Now, these two thieves, friends, were identical. They were arrested for the same crime, tried for the same crime, condemned of the same crime, dying for the same crime. What's the difference between them? No difference whatsoever. Both were thieves. Both come in the same category. I ask a group of intermediate boys. Well, there were girls there too, but a boy answered. I asked the question, 
and intermediates, junior high, you know. They call them junior highs now. It was intermediate in my day. And I asked this group, I said, what was the difference between the two thieves? And I certainly never expected the answer I got. One little fellow says, well, one's a good thief and the other's a bad thief. Well, you know, thieves just don't come in that kind of a classification. They're all bad, and the difference is not that. But I think a great many people think that's the difference. And by the way, I ask a liberal friend of mine. He and I, many years ago, played tennis together and handball at the YMCA. And I asked him one time, I said, what would you tell that thief on the cross? Would you tell him to run on errands of mercy? Would you tell him to perform deeds of kindness and helpfulness with his hands? And he looked at me rather startled. I said, well, come on. That's what you tell your people. He says, well, they can do things. Yes, but I said, what are you going to tell this poor thief? I said, you'd mock him to tell him to run and perform some helpful deed with his hands and to walk. Why, he'd tell you that his hands and feet are not coming down from that cross till they come down in death. And then, by the way, what church would you ask him to join? What ceremony would you ask him to go through? May I say to you, our Lord said to him, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And friends, he went into the presence of the Lord. Now, it was about the sixth hour. There was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And it was at that time that the darkness settled down. And it was during that period that this thief came to know that that cross was the altar on which the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world was offered. The sun was darkened. The veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And we've dealt with that before. Now, verse 46, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I command my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now, remember, it's Dr. Luke speaking, and he'd been in the presence of many people who died, and he knew how they died. Our Lord died differently, and it's been my unpleasant chore and duty to be in the presence of folk that have died. And there's what is known as the death rattle. That is when you draw in your last breath, and that's always with a struggle and with a great effort. This thief here he died that way, I'm sure. But the Lord Jesus didn't die that way, friends. He dismissed his spirit. You notice what he said? Father, into thy hands I command my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. He dismissed his spirit. And this is Dr. Luke's way of expressing it here. He died differently. Now, when the centurion saw what was done... He glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. This is very important to see. The centurion, I believe, was a saved man. I think this man that had charge of the crucifixion of Christ came to know him as Savior there. He, too, at the foot of the cross, could look up and see that something was taking place. And he could glorify God and said, This was a righteous man. 
And the other gospel writers add to it that he is also the Son of God. Now, I recognize that that would not be enough of a confession of faith for him to join the average church. I would never have taken a man into a membership of any church I ever served if that's all he could say. But after all, let's put him back where he stands. He's at the crucifixion. He doesn't know about the death and resurrection of Christ. And he's never read any books on theology. He never read Hodge on theology or Strong on theology. He never read Calvin's Institutes. And by the way, he never read any of McGee's books. This poor fellow really was in the dark, as you can see. But he knew enough to take his place at the foot of the cross of Christ. And do you know that that's all God's ever asked any sinner to do? just to take his place at the foot of the cross of Christ. And that's what this man did. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things that were done, smote their breasts and returned. Now, there was about the death of Christ an ominous and a fearful sort of an atmosphere. I'm of the opinion that we need to recognize that no gospel writer describes the death of Christ, the crucifixion, in detail. They tell you certain things about it, but none attempt to describe it in detail. It's as it were the Spirit of God pulled down the veil and said, this is too horrible for you to look at, and there's nothing here to satisfy your curiosity, therefore you are shut out from this just as we had to stand on the fringe at the Garden of Gethsemane, certainly we have to stand on the fringe of what's happening there on the cross. And you and I can only enter by faith. You and I can only look up and trust the one who is dying there for us. It had a tremendous effect upon the crowd that was there. And we read in verse 49, "...and all his acquaintance..." And the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. So you see that this was a tremendous event that has taken place here. Now we come to the section that actually has to do with the burial and the resurrection of Christ. They belong together. Remember, that's the way Paul put the gospel. He said, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, there are the facts of the gospel, and then there is the relationship that you and I have to those facts. What do they mean to you? Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again. What does that mean to you? Did you uh, accept him as Savior? And when I say that, what do I mean? I mean, do you believe he died for you? You believe that when he was buried, that means your sins were absolutely buried. They were cast into the midst of the sea. Sin question was settled. And that when he rose again, he rose, well, let me turn it around. You and I rose in him. 
and we're now in Christ. And God sees us in Christ, and his righteousness has been made over to us what he is. His standing becomes our standing, and that's all that you and I have of which we can boast today. Now let's look here at the burial of the Lord Jesus. Behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. Now this man, obviously a very prominent man, a member of the Sanhedrin, was the one, you will recall, that apparently exercised a great deal of influence, but a man that stood alone when he took a stand for Christ. Now, will you notice it? The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. Now, you see, though he was a member of the Sanhedrin, he did not agree with them. They did not get a majority when they put down the edict to have him crucified. This man disagreed. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. Now, he was what would be called a pious, religious man. And now, having come face to face with Christ, he had taken a stand for him. And there apparently were many believers in the Lord Jesus, even at this time, that were not out in the open as the apostles were. Joseph of Arimathea was not. And at the time of the crucifixion, what happened was that the apostles went underground, and these that were underground came out in the open. Now, here's Joseph. Nicodemus did. When we get to John's gospel, we'll see that he joined with Joseph in burying the Lord Jesus. And I say it reverently, but I say it that Joseph and Nicodemus were the undertakers that had charge of the burial of Jesus. We'll see that when we get to John's gospel. Now, it says, "...the same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. The man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus." He just comes out in the open now. He was a man of means, a man of influence. And he took it down, the body of Jesus. He wrapped it in linen, laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid. Now, the question, of course, arises today, where was that tomb or where is that tomb? And there are two places that are pointed out. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church has built a church over one. The other one is outside the city wall, and it is a tomb. I personally, and would you hear me carefully, I do not believe that either one is the one that Jesus was buried in. And I can tell you why. There were several that so hated Christ and Christianity that they would attempt to remove every vestige of any reminder of him. And certainly, a man like Titus, who actually plowed up the city of Jerusalem, and Justin, the apostate, and there were others. So that down through the centuries, all of that disappeared. 
And I'm of the opinion that we don't know the exact spot. But I do think the garden tomb is in the area, and it just happens to be one there that was not destroyed. The one I'm sure the Lord was in was destroyed. And God wanted us to do that. And you know why? And don't say that just one class of people would worship it and make it a fetish. A Protestant would do the same thing. When I was back there with a group, one member of our party, a lady, went into this garden tomb, got down on her all fours, and just began to kiss the bottom of that tomb and began to weep and howl. Well, may I say to you, there's no value in that. To begin with, that's apparently not the tomb he was buried in. So what? It's not the fact he was buried there that lends any value to it at all, even if we did have the right one. The value is in the one who's at God's right hand today, my living Savior, friends. That's where the value is, and let's turn our attention there. We need to recognize that, by the way. And so we find here, "...and that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on." That is, the Sabbath day coming up. "...and the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after, and beheld the sepulcher, how his body was laid." Now, the Sabbath drew near. In other words, it probably was Friday. I don't want to enter into that either, because the Bible doesn't say Jesus died for his sins on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday. Jesus died for his sins. And then, now, let's not waste our time arguing about the day. But I would think that since it says the Sabbath drew on, which would be Saturday, and it came on at sundown, that it means that this was on a Friday. But I'm not prepared to argue that with you. I don't think that's the essential thing here after all. Now, and the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. In other words, it was not a finished burial. That is, they should have wrapped the linen around the body and make a mummy out of it. And we'll see that actually that's what Nicodemus and Joseph did. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. So they spent the Sabbath day not coming to the tomb. And during that time, why we have here the spices they had prepared and who wasted their spices. Mary put them on the Lord Jesus yonder in the home in Bethany. She got them on his body. These women never did get their spices on him at all because he was out of that tomb. Now we come in chapter 24 to the fact of the resurrection. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came, that is, these women, came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And I've always wanted to ask those women what they ever did with those spices. Mary, they said to her, "'Why are you wasting this, putting it on the living Jesus?' Well, you better put it on the living Jesus. You'll never be able to put it on the dead Jesus. And so these women, they had some spices left over, and I think they went to waste. They probably were so excited that they just left them there. Now we are told they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And the stone was not rolled away to let him out. The stone was rolled away to let them in. 
And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. He wasn't there. You see, he'd already left. It came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee. That was a good question they asked. Why are you seeking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Why did Peter and John come running out to the tomb? They were seeking the dead among the dead. They were not seeking the living. They didn't believe that he'd come back from the dead. Now, the thing that we have here is that these women are those that have come to the tomb. Now, someone, I'm sure, is going to write in and say, well, Dr. McGee, there's a conflict among the Gospels. No, there's no conflict. If any of you got my book, and many of you did, of course, on Mark, when we were studying Mark, you know that I work out from all the Gospels the order of events on the resurrection morning. I think it's quite a logical thing. We're studying each gospel separately, and I'm merely dwelling on each one. But it can be worked out in an orderly sequence that is not contradictory at all. That's absurd. Each gospel writer is presenting, as it were, really a little different facet. And so what we have here is these women now, and Dr. Luke dwells on that. The Son of Man must be delivered. This is what our Lord had told him. Into the hands of sinful man be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. You know, you can hear something sometime and not hear it. And sometimes you can hear something and you can almost know it, but you don't believe it. And that's the way a lot of people are listening to the Word of God today. You see, when these went back to report, why, their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. They did not believe, but before the day was over, they did. Now, friends, Dr. Luke gives us something that no other gospel gives us. First of all, he gives the facts. And if you'll notice that since he's a doctor and deals with facts, why, he always presents facts to us, and yet he's the one that's given us the songs of Christmas He's the one that gave us parables that no other gospel writer has given us. And that's true of the resurrection. But he always presents the facts first. All the gospel writers, as well as all the writers of the New Testament, make it abundantly clear that the Lord Jesus again and again told his apostles and his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem and died, and that he was following the pattern, and that he would be raised again the third day. And we read in verse 8, they remembered his words. You will recall we said sometimes we hear something, but we don't believe it. We may believe it, but we don't trust what has been said to us. They remembered the words and returned from the sepulcher, and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and other women that were with them which told these things unto the apostles. 
Now, the apostles, I'm sure you would feel at this time, would be greatly impressed by what they heard. But notice the reaction, verse 11. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Now, these women that reported, you would have thought they are creditable witnesses, that their testimony would have been accepted. But the first disbelievers of the resurrection were the apostles themselves. And yet our Lord had told them again and again. Now will you notice, verse 12, "...then arose Peter and ran unto the sepulcher, and stooping down he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass." Now, this man Simon Peter had to turn it over in his mind a great while before he came to decision. I do not think he was quite as alert mentally as John, the apostle. John tells us in his gospel, when he went in that tomb and saw, he believed. Now will you notice, verse 12, "...then arose Peter and ran unto the sepulcher, and stooping down he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed." And that convinced John. But Simon Peter had to turn it over in his mind wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. Now we come, at verse 13, to the road to Emmaus. This is a very interesting road, by the way, that we are on. We hear a great deal about on the Jericho Road. I don't know. The Jericho Road's where you fall among thieves. But the road to Emmaus is the road where these men met the resurrected Christ. I think I'll take the Emmaus road, if you don't mind. You'll notice how our Lord dealt with these men now as we look at this incident. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs. I don't know exactly how long that would be. There's been some question about it, just how far... It was a little over half a mile, maybe more than that, probably ten miles, five miles. I'll let the others argue that point. I personally think it probably was about five to ten miles. Now, will you notice, and they talked together of all these things which had happened, and it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? He joins them on the Emmaus road, these men that were disciples, and they were talking about the resurrection. They hadn't seen him, and candidly they didn't believe it. And they would never believe that the one that had joined them could be the resurrected Christ. To begin with, they weren't looking for him at all. Now, will you notice, as they walked along, he raises this question, "...and the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days?" Now, this man, Cleopas, and this incident that Dr. Luke gives us 
reveals a sidelight that you would not get anywhere else. And that is that the arrest of Jesus, his crucifixion, and now his purported resurrection from the dead had stirred Jerusalem. And these men just couldn't believe that there was anyone in the area that didn't know about it. It would be, I'm sure, like you would be walking down the street in your town or your community or wherever you live, and you'd meet a man that was a stranger, and you were with a friend, and you all were discussing about the trip that was made to the moon. And this man said, "'You mean to tell me somebody's been to the moon?' And you all would say yes, and said, "'Well, of all things, would you tell me about it?' And you would naturally react, "'You mean to tell me that you live in this day and generation and don't know that a man's been to the moon?' You see, friends, this thing just seemed unbelievable, that there could be anybody that didn't know what had happened. And it reveals that when Paul said this thing was not done in a corner, that is, that Jesus died and rose again, Friends, it was pretty much common knowledge in that day. This was not something that was hushed up or done under a corner. It was like a city set on a hill, a candle that set on a candlestick. It sure lighted up. Now let me read verse 19. And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet. You notice what they said? He was a prophet. They thought he was dead, too. Did they believe he was back from the dead? They did not. Which was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. Now, they give a witness to the death of Christ. Now, notice, at that point, their faith went down. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. In other words, these men now are saying, well, we had hoped he would be the prophet, but it's too late now. He's been crucified. He's dead. They didn't have very much faith in what this prophet had said. You may be sure of that. Then verse 22, "...yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And these men, in turn, didn't believe the women either. They didn't believe that the tomb was empty. You can see the unbelief there was in the resurrection at this time. Now, again, there's a little hope and a little light breaks in on these men's thinking. Verse 24, "...and certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said." And then their faith went up, and it just ballooned up, and then somebody put a pin in the balloon. "...but him they saw not." Well. What had happened? The body had been taken away. Something had happened. They were not prepared to explain what it was. And the fact remained, no one had seen him. Now will you notice, 
Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now we're in a very interesting area here. In fact, I consider a very important area, friends. He's talking here now about his resurrection. And I want you to notice what he's saying. He did not show them the prints of the nails in his hands to prove his resurrection. What did he do? He referred them to the Scripture rather than the nail prints. Listen to him here. He says at this particular time, these men couldn't believe it. And he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You should have believed the prophets. And it's well to note his attitude toward the Scripture. It was reverence. This is a day of doubt. The sword of the Damoclean doubt hangs over the Word of God today. And there are those that are actually saying you cannot be intelligent and believe the Bible. And a great many people are afraid that they won't be considered intelligent so they don't come out flat-footed and say whether they believe the Bible or not. I suppose the most subtle and satanic error of the present is to discount the inerrancy and the integrity of the Word of God. Notice what Christ said. Our Lord said, A man's a fool not to believe it. And he gave a unanimous and wholehearted acceptance of its statements. There's no ifs and ands. I picked up a seminary professor at a filling station. His car had had trouble, and he left it there. And he wanted to know if he couldn't ride up into Pasadena with me. And as we rode along, why... I asked him about his school's viewpoint of the inerrancy of Scripture. Well, he says, you mean infallibility. I said, now, wait a minute. You're arguing semantics. You know what I mean, and I know what you mean. Do you or do you not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? And do you know that he hadn't declared flat-footed whether he believes it or not? He wants to appear intelligence, you see, in our day. And very frankly, a lot of these men today, my feeling is they do not have the intestinal fortitude to stand for the Word of God. I think that's part of their problem. I do not think it's intellectual difficulties that some of them are having at all. Now, you'll notice here that he puts the emphasis upon the Word of God. He says, "...ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself." Christ says that there are two things essential to the understanding of the Word of God. It's simple but important. First is faith in the Bible. There in verse 25, O fools and slow of heart to believe. You're not believing. Pascal said human knowledge must be understood to be believed, but divine knowledge must be believed to be understood. I think the Bible is a closed book to the critic and infidel. He can learn a few facts, but the message is missed. While some simple soul whose heart's turned in humble faith to God, the Spirit of God will 
enlighten the eyes of the understanding of that individual. You know, great men of the past have come to the pages of Scripture for light and life in the dark hour are in crisis. Now, it's not smart to ridicule the Bible. It's not sophisticated to disbelieve it either. I must reiterate the words of my Lord. You're a fool not to believe it. And I'd rather lack sophistication and subtlety and believe the Bible than to be a fool. And then he says it can be only divinely understood. Human intellect is just not enough to comprehend its truths. We are told over in verse 45, "...then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures." And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, "...the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned." How important these things are. There are things that are above human comprehension, and only the Spirit of God can make these things real to us. And our prayer ought to be, "...open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy word." We need to bring an humble mind to the study of the Word of God. Just because you read it in the Bible does not mean you know it. The Spirit of God will have to make it real to you. If you bring to the Bible an honest heart, and you sincerely want to know God's truth, if you have doubts, then bring them to him. You'll beat your music out. The Bible reveals a person. And you'll notice that he will deal with that here when he appears to the disciples. Now I must move along here. Verse 28, And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. Now, there are several things that I'd like to say about this particular incident. And one of them is this, that the resurrected, glorified Christ wants to fellowship with those that are his own. And he only fellowships finally with those who believe in him. You see, he disappeared from these men. And he talked to them about these things. He began at Moses and the prophets. I'd love to have been there that evening, wouldn't you, and have listened to him. And they wanted him to stay, but he acted as if he's going on and at the table at the breaking of bread. And I believe that that's a wonderful time to gather around a table to eat and to share the things of Christ. It's a wonderful place. There's nothing wrong with the church banquet, provided it's not all given over to music and hearing some soloist or a magician entertain us. We need to, in the church, emphasize the Word of God. We've got too much church program that leaves Jesus Christ out. When he's in the midst breaking the bread, I tell you, friends, there's blessing. has to be blessing. And if there's not, then you're with the wrong crowd. This happened to be a good crowd, though, because in verse 32, they said one to another, "...did not our hearts burn within us 
while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the Scriptures. And they rose up the same hour. They returned to Jerusalem, found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. You see, he appeared to Simon Peter privately because there were some things that had to be straightened out, and they were straightened out. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now in the upper room, and as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And I'm sure that would have been your reaction and mine had we been there. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. I don't want to labor the point, but it was flesh and bones, not flesh and blood. He'd shed his blood on the cross. Now, and while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And this is a master stroke, and Dr. Luke, the doctor, gives it to us. The proof that he's a human being is that he could eat fish. And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat it before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning him. They just didn't believe his words. Someone has said concerning the words of the Lord Jesus and the words of the Word of God, that if you cut them, they'll bleed. <laughs> they surely will. They're living words. Now notice verse 45. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. You will have to have the Spirit of God to open your mind and heart to understand. This Bible study could be just meaningless to you, and I hope it's not. The Spirit of God can make it real to you, and He's the only one that can. Our Lord opened their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. And He said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Now, notice the global outlook, the worldwide viewpoint. This gospel is to go to the ends of the earth. And the other great truth, ye are witnesses of these things. Witnesses to the world, that was his method. And the message was that he had died and rose again, and that by trusting him, sinners could be saved. Now he says, verse 49, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, that promise of the Father is the Holy Spirit. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. That power is the Holy Spirit. And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. The last time they saw him was in the attitude of blessing. And that's his attitude today toward the world. And his attitude toward you and me today, if we're his children, is that when we see him, it'll be in the attitude of blessing. 
He does not come in judgment for the church. He comes in blessing, and we're to look with great joy and anticipation to his coming. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. This is the testimony of the gospel of Luke.